0: In Vienna, OPEC agreeing to extend its oil production cuts to the end of the year, trying to rebalance the market. They say the job is yet to be completed. Here to tell us more is Jason Schenker. He is the president of Prestige Economics, and he is also a Bloomberg prophet, and he joins us from Vienna. Jason, what can you tell us about this move by OPEC? It doesn't seem to have done much for the price of oil. It was higher earlier in the trading session, now down three-tenths of a percent at $57 a barrel. For West Texas Intermediate Crude?
2: Well, there's a couple dynamics going on here, Pam. And the first is that we don't have a finished agreement as to whether it's six months or a nine-month extension, whether the cuts in production will go through October 1st or January 1st of 2019, so th- that's not quite yet fully done. I was actually just up in the ministerial room where they were taking a break between the uh, the OPEC part of the meeting and now the OPEC and non-OPEC um, discussions around production, so there's no official word out yet as to how long the extension of the cuts is going to be, and I think that might be why we're seeing some choppy price action in crude today because we don't yet have a firm thing on the table. <laughs>
1: Jason, what could OPEC agree to that would materially move the price of oil?
2: Well, I mean, I think it's a matter of time. You know, the the longer the inventories fall, then the more price support we're likely to see. Uh, They are, well, you know, OPEC doesn't explicitly target the price of crude, but what they are explicitly targeting is the five-year average. And so as the central bank of oil, much like the Fed that doesn't necessarily target a, a U.S. exchange rate for the dollar or a level for the stock market, you know they're not explicitly targeting the price of oil, but they're targeting instead uh, this other more macro factor, which are these inventory levels. So I think what's going to be really important for the price of crude in the next year plus is how the global economy uh, shakes out. And next year looks like it's going to be a good year. And if those inventories continue to fall, Growth is strong. We could see crude between sixty seventy bucks an hour a- as average price uh, for the year for w t
1: i uh, but that is only if these uh, production cuts are continued
2: well you know, I, I think that we're likely to see them continued, whether it's six months or nine months. I think we we haven't quite seen the full uh, answer on yet. But I think that uh, you're likely to see some level of extension. Even without them, you're likely to see prices supported. But I'd say that there's more short-term upside risk and also more upside risk at the back end of next year if we see these inventories move towards a five-year average.
1: The reason why I'm asking is because you're talking about 60 to $70 a barrel. It's getting cheaper for for shale producers in the U.S. to pump oil, and they are producing more and more, especially as prices rise. How much does that sort of remove the importance of OPEC's uh, decision here because shale can just sort of compensate on the other side?
2: Well, it's still really important because the thing with shale is uh, while they're trying to cut their way to profitability and more money has come into the space, you still have investors being a little bit gun-shy in, in terms of they want to make sure they're making really good investments. So a lot of funds have been raised. You've seen a lot of money interested in the space, but you're seeing funds kind of hold back on the allocation of capital because everybody's holding out for a sweetheart deal. And if you need to wait for higher break even prices, then those won't really be sweetheart deals. So you can see more production come online, but you know, it's not as uh, you know the, the decision to drill a well, uh, you know, isn't necessarily going to be um, as, as mercenary as okay, the price goes up another dollar and they're going to pull the trigger on it. Uh, but I think if we see a significant rise in prices, that's kind of why I say sixty to seventy, kind of as an average range. Because you know, if you get close to seventy, you get above seventy, there will be more drilling action. But that's also going to accompany the demand side that usually pulls prices higher because. Oil, like other commodities, is bought and not sold, which means the demand side, honestly, is going to be more important for prices in the immediate term.
0: Jason, how much of this is all due to the fluctuation in the value of the U.S. dollar?
2: Not that much, Pim. I mean, a lot of this has to do with the fact that China was in a manufacturing recession. If you look at the monthly Saishin manufacturing PMI, an index that's coming out tonight at 8.45 p.m. Eastern time, that index was below 50. It's an indication of manufacturing growth in small and medium-sized uh, manufacturers in China. It was below 50, indicating recession between December of 14 and June of 2016. And that's the exact time window when oil inventories built. In other words, big surprise, the biggest net importer of the world, China, was in a recession while global inventories of oil went up. So that's actually a critical part of the story because China's been expanding since, and perhaps even more important than the decision today will be what happens with that number tonight and in coming months.
1: Real quick, did they play ominous music as the uh, Russian uh, advocate walked in? I'll give you 10 seconds. (laughs)
2: There's, there's no ominous music at OPEC, and I don't generally think there's any music here except for when we've had you know parties at Schönbrunn, and they you know they bring out the Viennese uh, orchestra when when occasionally we we had a party one year uh, they had at the uh, the old uh, Borsa, the old exchange, and the, the Vienna Boys Choir serenaded us. But no ominous music. Usually, it's more Viennese flair than that. <laughs>
1: (laughs) Jason Schenker, thank you so much for joining us. Jason Schenker, president of Prestige Economics, as well as a Bloomberg prophet, and he is there in Vienna as OPEC leaders meet to talk about uh, furthering output cuts.
0: North Korea launching a missile that lands in the uh, Sea of Japan. It is uh, described as a ballistic missile launch intercontinental. And uh, this missile launch also brings a response from the U.S. government, President Donald Trump, saying that after a phone call with President of China, Xi Jinping, that major new sanctions uh, will be imposed on North Korea, perhaps uh, an embargo on oil uh, shipments to North Korea. Here to help us understand more about this is Leland Miller. He is the chief executive of the China Beige Book International, and he joins us here in our 1130 studios. Leland, thank you for being with us. Maybe just lay out for uh, our listeners, what
3: exactly do you perceive as being the most current risk? Well, the what we're seeing right now is a buildup of capabilities by the North Koreans, and they are not yet at the point where they can shoot a missile to the continental United States with a payload that matters. So the real risk right now is that they over-signal themselves in a way that, that irritates the Trump administration and the Trump administration overreacts, or in some ways are involved in some sort of proliferation with bad guys. And that gives a reason to strike, whereas there may not otherwise be that reason to strike.
1: Uh, when you say a payload that matters. In other words, they can't get a nuclear weapon small enough to get on some of these ballistic missiles uh, in order to hit the U.S. Uh, Just sort of zooming out, what are the options at this point for the U.S.? And certainly uh, it seems like China is at the center of them. So what would would the U.S. have to give up uh, for China to really get more aggressive with North Korea?
3: So the problem with this is this is going to have to go in stages. It's going to be escalation Pause escalation. Pause, and there's almost no way to jump from stage A to stage D without going through the hoops at each stage. And what I mean by that is, they're going to the North Koreans are going to have to show increased capabilities with their missiles and with their miniaturization of of their nuclear weapons. Uh, The Trump administration is going to have to show an increasing willingness to confront them. They're going to have to show they're willing to to put a military solution on the table. They're willing to go after the the areas of the Chinese economy, which have been too sensitive to do, to do that for in the past. So, so oil, as you said, and, and also the banking system. And there's going to have to be this escalation in terms of what the US is willing to do to stop a North Korean uh, nuclear capability and what the North Koreans are willing to do in order to push back against that and what the Chinese are involved. And, and this will keep going until a certain point in which everyone will feel it's more politically palatable to come to the table at. Uh, at that point, but not until things have escalated that stage. And we're not there yet.
1: So let's say we get through those stages. What are the different constituents going to ultimately say they want?
3: Well, if you look at North Korea first and foremost, what, what do they want? They want a continuation of the Kim dynasty. They want peace. They want all the sanctions to be ripped off so that their economy can grow again. Um, they want to be a normal country. And that's problematic considering the North Korean dynasty and, and, and their history. Uh, China wants to avoid all of their worst-case scenarios, so they've got a worst-case scenario that involves uh, a, you know, a U.S. missile strike on the Korean Peninsula, refugee flows over the over the North Korean border, but also some sort of peaceful solution that comes too easy, where U.S. troops and South Korea basically swallows up North Korea and then you've got a massive U.S. ally on their border supported very strongly by the United States, that's also a, a worst-case scenario for them. So what they want is everyone to feel pain and whatever solution ends up happening at the end to be acceptable to China but painful enough to everybody else so that so that they can live with it. Based on your analysis of the Chinese economy
0: right now, is the economy in such a strong position that it can... Uh, that
3: the political leadership can actually uh, come through on some of the things that you describe. Well, the the dynamics of Xi consolidating his power have, have changed some of this. So the economy is rather strong. There's a question right now in terms of the first half of 2018 and going forward, how much is Xi going to try to restructure and rebalance the economy in a painful way? Is he going to try some reform that's going to actually cut growth and, and put him uh and, and and cause some problems for him and May, the
0: anti-corruption
3: uh anti-corruption efforts that anti- he's put in place that has gotten some pushback it, it, and it will continue to anti corruption anti-pollution anti-overcapacity everything he's doing right now can can cause pain but she is in such control that there's not really a question of the political willpower in china being able to push a solution if she wants it he'll push it and, and I, don't, I don't think that the problem comes from china
1: so you said that everyone's going to have to feel some pain. From the U.S. perspective, what's the pain here?
3: Well, from just looking at President Trump, you know, he's repeated what every other president has said for 20 years, which is we will never allow the North Koreans to have a nuclear missile. So if you're going to have an ultimate solution to that, there's no way of ripping this away. There's, the North Koreans are not going to give up their nuclear technology or their nuclear weapons. And so a U.S. solution, unfortunately, may have to involve uh, granting the North Koreans uh, publicly uh, acknowledging them to be a nuclear power and to possibly bring them into the NPT. Now, do I like this? No, I think it's awful. But you know, you look at what's possible. The North Koreans are not giving up their nuclear weapons. They saw what happened in in, in Libya. They saw what happened in Iraq. They, they they're not going to do it. So the question is is that what what is the the U S willing to backtrack on in order to get the the threat reduced on you know, m- missile strikes on the U.S. mainland.
1: You also said uh, that prolifer- prol- proliferation is the biggest risk. Uh, just quickly, is there any sense that North Korea is thinking of exporting some of its nuclear capacity to, say, Iran?
3: Well, they have in the past, so that's that's the danger area. Now, they they did it in the past. They they traded technology. They sold technology. Um, so they're perfectly capable of doing it, and there's no there's no moral component here. North Korea will do whatever it thinks is in its interest. Uh, the problem is is that the Kim dynasty has has they have to realize at this point that if they cross that line, that that could be a potential red line for for the trump white house and and could bring a strike where otherwise they might not get a strike. And so they have to be very careful on that.
1: Leland Miller, thank you so much for joining us uh, and for sharing your insights. Leland Miller is chief executive of China Beige Book International, talking about uh, North Korea and uh, how the different phases of this negotiation are likely to play out. Alibaba. People clamored for its IPO. They are now clamoring for its $7 billion of bonds uh, sold in the U.S. I want to bring in Claire Boston, corporate finance reporter for Bloomberg News. Uh, She joins us here in our 1130 studios to talk about it. Claire, can you give us a sense of why there was so much demand for this debt sale? Uh, Can you also put it into context as far as uh, size and scope with respect to uh, Chinese issuers?
4: Thanks so much for having me, Lisa. Um, When it comes to this deal, uh, there were several things that stuck out. Um, One is that Alibaba is not a frequent issuer. This is only uh, their second deal um, and their first since their inaugural deal in 2014. Um, also, it's a bit of a higher-rated deal. It's a had a triple or it had a um, single A plus rating um, at S and P and the equivalent at Moody's. And for many investors, uh, many investment-grade bonds now are more like the triple B range. So this is a opportunity to get some higher-quality paper. Um, in terms of what this means for the market, uh, this is the biggest um, Asian corporate deal um, this year, and it's just a little bit smaller than Alibaba's um, inaugural deal in 2014.
0: Why do they need the money?
4: They uh, said that they were going to, um, you know, look at investments or, uh, you know, kind of growth in the future. It was sort of a general um, bond sale. Nothing specific. No, no. Um, but, they're going to invest know,
0: in artificial intelligence companies. They're going to expand their uh, relationship uh, with their suppliers in uh, in China, but nothing specific about yeah, what Yeah, but, but, do with but the growth,
4: money. which is, uh, you know, something that bond investors like to hear. It's, you know, maybe a little bit more palatable than just, you know, paying equity holders with your debt than just investing in your bank account.
1: Uh, I'm wondering, though, Claire, uh, with the respect to the denomination, right, this is dollar denominated
4: uh, debt. I'm wondering, does that indicate that Alibaba is looking to expand in the U.S.? It's hard to say. But, um, you know, in terms of this bond sale, they definitely um, were going after U.S. investors in addition to uh, Chinese investors, and they were targeting. You know, uh, some of their uh, sort of marketing calls um, to both areas.
1: So Tencent is uh, reportedly looking to follow this up with their own bond sale. Can you give us any color about that?
4: Yes, uh, they announced um, yesterday that they, uh, you know, may follow in the marketplace. Uh, we don't have any information about, you know, whether they were inspired by uh, Alibaba or anything. But Alibaba had forty-six billion dollars of demand. Uh, our sources tell us, um, so that might be an indication that, uh, you know, U.S. investors are hungry for um, Chinese corporate debt.
0: Well, it's certainly pushing up issuance. Correct. I mean, we're at the three hundred billion mark for the first time.
4: Yeah, we are. Uh, we have already set the... Uh,
0: this is the Asia X Japan. Asia, I beg yes. your pardon. Yeah, yes. Asia X Japan bond
1: sale. I quickly was looking
4: sale. up the yeah, go. And what was he talking about? That's not investment yeah, grade. Yeah, yeah, that's way more. Right, $300 yes. billion. <laughs> um, Yeah, so it's been a strong year for Asian issuance, and it's been a strong year for U.S. investment grade sales overall. Um, a few weeks ago, we passed last year's record. Um, so we are now at the uh, all-time for U.S. investment grade bond sales.
1: So I'm going to just channel my inner pessimist and say, well, you know, granted Alibaba is a behemoth, Tencent, they're like the biggest companies uh, in China and they're grabbing market share and they're grabbing the envy of a lot of tech companies here in the U.S. But having dollar denominated debt does raise a currency issue, right, especially with the U.N. and uh, any potential fluctuations there. No one cares about that, right?
4: Uh, it's, it's hard to tell. You know, I mean, I think that uh, they lay out their risk factors um, pretty obviously in their uh, various documentations. Uh, they actually do in their uh, bond sale have a uh, put provision that uh, basically says that uh, if issues arise with the Chinese government um, that prevent Alibaba from doing business, the bonds can be uh, called back at 101 cents on the dollar.
0: So you'd actually make money.
1: Well, where are it- they trading now?
4: Yeah. Um so some of them have traded up actually. Uh, you know, you saw that sort of traditional new issue pop. Um several are already past one oh one cents on the dollar. Uh, but you know, we'll see. There uh, you go. You'd lose money if you bought them now.
0: Well, I mean at issue.
4: I know, but I'm just saying because yeah, this, this is it's relevant. Yes. Anyway. Uh, you know, that's kind of a sign of he- healthy demand in the marketplace, you know, when you see that uh, you know, as soon as they uh, hit the market and they're on, already up a cent or two.
0: Well you say healthy demand. It might be just exuberant demand, do you think?
1: I mean, basically, we've got nothing to demand. They'll else buy anything, band. right? I mean, but they're being pushed out of a lot of other government debt, so investment grade is the new government debt, and this is just yet another example.
4: We're, we're seeing that search for yield. It's kind of been the story of the past several years at this point, and uh seems to be one that will continue. Thank you very
1: much.
0: Claire Thank Boston, you. as always, uh, much appreciated corporate finance reporter for Bloomberg News giving us uh, some details about that Alibaba bond sale, $7 billion of U.S. dollar denominated debt. He joins us now, Cliff Noreen, Deputy Chief Investment Officer for Mass Mutual Financial Group, helping to manage more than 160 billion dollars in assets. Uh, Mass Mutual's total assets are over 650 billion. You've got to include their subsidiaries, for example, Barings and Oppenheimer Funds. He's based in Springfield, Mass, but he joins us in our 11:30 studios. Cliff, always a pleasure. Thanks for coming in. You know, before we get to some specifics about you know investments and so on, I just want to understand if the tax overhaul plan that is being considered in Washington were actually to be passed and become law. Do you have any sense of what this would do to the budget to the uh, deficit of the United States, particularly you know, what this would mean for all of the obligations that the government has for things like Social Security, Medicare, uh, as well as uh, all the other entitlement programs. Never even mind the, the municipal uh, programs.
5: Well, this plan is a very giant puzzle. It's very complicated. There's a lot of moving parts. It's like a chess game going on because we hear different things every day. But the bottom line is our country has $20.5 trillion of debt today. Last year, for the year into September 30th, 2017, our government produced revenues or receipts of $3.3 trillion and spent almost $4 trillion. So we had a deficit of around $650 billion. And that deficit has been coming down. It was a little bit lower the year before, but th- the years during the financial crisis, it was over a trillion dollars. So we've accumulated a lot of debt. Our debt has more than doubled over the last 10 years. So that is an issue. And then we have all the obligations for social security and then for pensions for federal employees and their medical benefits. And that is not included in the 20 and a half trillion. So, If you look at all that debt and all the obligations, which add up to some people say $100 trillion, uh, it is a bit challenging, and nobody's really talking about this or addressing it.
1: So from an investment perspective, Cliff, does that mean that you are avoiding treasuries altogether?
5: No. No, we are still buying treasuries. We have to buy treasuries as a a large investor in high-quality assets, but it is a challenge to our country that is going to have to be addressed not today or tomorrow, but sometime over the next- three, five, ten 10 years.
1: You also did buy some of those Alibaba bonds that we were just talking about. Is that correct? Yes. Does it concern you that uh, they are earning money in yuan and uh, trying to pay back dollars?
5: No, the company is a financial powerhouse. It has a $460 billion market cap. It doesn't have that much debt. Um, I'm trying to remember the, talking to our guys yesterday. Um, it has $14 billion in debt. It has more than that in cash. It is growing and it's using the bond market um, with these low rates to effectively finance. Instead of using equity, they're using debt, paying 3 4 5% for long-term debt. And it is a very smart way for them to raise capital from us. As an investor, we're diversifying our bond portfolio. We don't really invest a lot in the public bond market today. There's not a lot of value, but we are selectively buying names that we like, and we like Alibaba as a company.
0: So you mentioned that you're not participating in the public markets as much as you perhaps have done in the past. Can you give us some examples, some ideas of what in the private market you have found to be attractive?
5: We've been making real estate loans, mortgages, first mortgages on very large buildings in very large dollar amounts. Again, the public bond investors can't invest in those. We don't have liquidity in those, but they do add a lot of yield and spread to our portfolio. What kind of yield? We've been getting on our private corporate debt about 100 basis points more for illiquid assets that we cannot sell, but we have um, very high quality borrowers, single A, triple B borrowers, and we've been overweight in that sector. And we've been also buying CLO liabilities. That market's tightened this year, but that's been an overweight we've had. We think that is it was a misprice. It's less mispriced today, but we're buying these less known, less liquid assets that add more yield to our portfolio on a long-term basis.
1: With CLOs, are you buying equity, are you buying AAA paper, what are you buying?
5: We buy primarily AAA, AA.
1: And then what about other uh, sort of illiquid investments? Because this has gotten increasingly crowded as a lot of insurance companies and uh, and pensions and hedge funds and private equity firms have all been trying to go into private debt and some of these less liquid asset classes. Uh, have you had to go further into the esoteric space? Well, and if so, where?
5: We've been buying primarily investment grade because because we are a highly rated insurance company. We do buy middle market loans, which we believe have much better value today than high yield public bonds. And in the investment grade space, again, we're overweighting that because of the nature of our company and our liabilities and our assets. Um, Corporate debt to some other unusual things like private equity firms into funds, closed end funds, we're a lender in both the debt in the preferred stock. We think those are very well secured, very low risk.
1: With private equity firms, you're lending to the the private equity firms or to their companies?
5: Uh, Both, I I really can't mention any names, but we have been lending to funds into different structures they've done that um, we think are very secure and um, represent really good value for our policyholders. Now the conditions that have pushed you into these kinds
0: of, uh, let's just say alternative investments, I mean that in a more generic way, Do those uh, conditions, do you believe that they will continue? In other words, are we going to maintain this level of low interest rates?
5: So we're in the fourth quarter of 2017. This all started in the fourth quarter of 2008, so we've had nine full years of these very low interest rates. I call this an unconventional, highly unusual, radical era of monetary policy. And how long will this continue? We don't know, we wouldn't, you know, three years, five years ago, we thought we'd be out of it already, but the economy is certainly getting better. The stock market is booming right now. And you would think that we would start, and the United States is being the adult here, it is raising rates. So we've raised short-term rates, uh, 25 basis points several times, we're gonna do it again here in December. But you look at Europe, you look where rates are in Germany, you look at rates in Japan, The uh, two year rate in Germany is negative 69 basis points. In Japan, it's negative 17. The 10 year rate is almost zero. In Japan, it's 38 basis points in Germany. So investors around the world look at the United States as being the higher yielding area. And that's where a lot of the demand is coming to push our rates and keep our rates as low as they have been. The yield curve is shifted this year. The two year yield is up a lot. It's up from about 120 to about one and three quarters percent here this year. But the 10 year yield is actually down.
1: Yes started
5: at 2.45, it's almost 2.39, 2.40. So we've had um, the Fed being proactive, and I think that's the right thing to do.
1: So uh, just real quick, you're talking about some of the alternative investments that you're going into. Uh, What kind of yield bogey are you going for given those investments and given the mandate of staying within the investment grade realm?
5: Well, everything is still priced off a treasury yield. So we're trying to get a premium yield over U.S. treasuries. And you can look at public bonds you can buy all day long you can buy and sell them and we're actually getting a premium as I said on private corporate debt of almost 100 basis points real estate mortgages are less than that but they are still I think they're better investments structurally you don't have the liquidity but our intent we're a long-term holder we're not investing for quarters we're investing for years and decades and we've been doing this for a long time and it's it's actually a um, a good long-term strategy in my mind
1: Cliff Noreen, we love having you on. Yay, it's great to see you. Cliff Noreen uh, is Deputy Chief Investment Officer of Mass Mutual Financial Group, helping to oversee $160 billion of assets. It's based in Springfield, Massachusetts. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast.
0: You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer.